Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. So this episode we're talking about Annihilation, the new movie by writer-director Alex Garland, whose last film was Ex Machina and he's um, written several other uh, sci-fi movies before. This one is based on the first book in Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy, but it's kind of a pretty loose adaptation. He changes it significantly and kind of inserts a character and that sort of thing. Neither of us have read the book, and I don't feel like that's particularly a big deal because this is very much, you know, a new type of storytelling. It's kind of a very strange sci-fi story that uses a lot of kind of visual and auditory cues to build its world. As usual, the first section of our podcast will be spoiler free and then we'll kind of do a spoiler warning and people can leave us at that juncture. Um, Please try and watch the movie because it's great and we don't want to spoil you. Um, So the general gist is that it's about uh, Natalie Portman, who's a cell biology professor married to a soldier who she met in the military, played by Oscar Isaac. He goes on a mysterious mission, is thought to be dead and then comes back changed so she tries to find out what happens and finds out that he's been at this kind of exploratory facility which is looking into the location of an alien crash site and in order to find out what happened to Oscar Isaac uh, she goes on a mission with a team of women to find out what is inside what is referred to as the shimmer so it's basically this area with a shimmery alien appearance where strange and horrible things happen that's correct good good summary it's really beyond that point it just gets weird this is a very weird movie which i found very satisfying and unfortunately the distributor of the film uh paramount was meant to be distributing this film i believe and it was given a not very impressive release in the u.s and it's become kind of the latest iconic version of a movie that has got a lot of critical acclaim and is really interesting but got shafted and therefore didn't get a decent release so outside the US you can now actually watch it on Netflix if you're lucky I would highly recommend going to see it in theatres if you're in the US but I did watch it on a TV screen and while it was mind-blowing I kept thinking I need to see this on a big screen because there are certain things where it's just small you know and you want that kind of atmospheric situation. Well it was really interesting to see it I went with a couple of our mutual friends to a theater in Brooklyn, big screen experience, packed house. And I thought this movie was totally great. I saw it a few weeks ago and I'm looking forward to talking about it because I have not thought about it that much in the intervening time. Like I thought it was a really good film and I read some articles about it today to prepare for this podcast and I thought they were really interesting and made me sort of consider the movie in a different way, but it wasn't something that stuck with me in a massive way in the sort of immediate aftermath of seeing it whereas something like for instance phantom thread i saw multiple times and like had thought about so much since seeing it and like that's an extreme case of movie i fell madly in love with but i'm just using that as an illustrative example of the sort of opposite of this whereas like watching this in the theater i was like this is great and then i haven't thought about it a ton since but that's actually like an argument for why it should be in theaters because it was such an incredible theatrical experience the visuals of this movie are totally stunning there are some incredibly trippy special effects near the end that we can discuss in detail later but they're the kind of special effects that are very obviously special effects they're not trying to pretend that they're not but 
they're executed in a way that is really like wild and mesmerizing to behold. And also this movie is genuinely terrifying. Like I don't particularly like slasher horror movies. I don't go to them, but I do like more atmospheric horror films, but I don't tend to get actually scared by movies very much. And I was legitimately terrified watching this film. There are a few jump scare moments that are really, really effective, but also just this genuine dread and weirdness that really work. And a few moments of gore that didn't feel gratuitous to me. I thought they were like just placed in the movie in a way that was very gory, but was doing something that I really appreciated. And it just struck me as a sort of, movie that so didn't necessarily need to be seen on a big screen but benefited from it hugely and it has massively positive word of mouth i think it has an a cinema score which is the kind of rating of how audiences react to a movie and basically if this movie were starring ryan gosling and a bunch of men and not natalie portman and a bunch of women this would not have happened and it makes me really mad yeah I mean, people have been complaining about this and we won't go into any more because it's not very interesting to hear again, but it is ridiculous how this film was marketed because even in the US where it did get the cinematic release and it's still kind of lingering on in cinemas, the adverts for it were ridiculous. Like the trailers for this movie spoil a bunch of stuff in the film, so I'm really glad I didn't watch them. Um, And also the poster is just a picture of Natalie Portman and they ignore the fact that the supporting cast is... Oscar Isaac, who was just in fucking Star Wars, but then Jennifer Jason Leigh, Gina Rodriguez, and Tessa Thompson. And it's like, there are significant portions of people who will go watch a movie just because Gina Rodriguez or Tessa Thompson are in it. And it just really seems really clueless to not advertise that fact. (laughs) Well, I suspect that they literally don't know that. Oh, no, they don't know that. They clearly don't know that. And they also opened this in February against Black Panther. So... I mean, Black Panther made more money than anyone in Hollywood was expecting, but even so, February is a dead month, and opening it up against the Marvel movie coming out in February, like, clearly they didn't expect this to make any money. And it's made, like, a little, but it has not been a huge hit, because Black Panther is still making, like, $45 million every weekend, and it's been out for weeks. But it's just, it's still just so frustrating, because when you think about, you know, I mean, people have been kind of saying, oh, gravity, but very much Arrival. It's in the same wheelhouse as Arrival. It's much weirder. But if they were like, this is the new 2001, it's that kind of thing. And if you just kind of advertise that on that level and say who's actually in the film, it would have had a fighting chance. But anyway, let's discuss the actual content of this wonderful experience. Yes. I found the sort of set up to it also very sort of interesting and effective. The begin- I was just praising the visuals, sort of to high heaven. The beginning of this movie is really drab to look at. And I immediately knew, because I had seen trailers, although I had not paid up enough attention to be spoiled, it w- ex- for the most part, so that was fine. It was clearly like deliberately set up to be boring looking, which then sets up the sort of second two-thirds of the movie or something to be even more sort of wild which I thought was great. But the big thing that happens right at the beginning is that Oscar Isaac shows up, as you said, and this is clearly sort of off about him. And he is, I believe, the only man that appears in the movie, except for the scenes once she's sort of come back after, where she's questioned by another man, which is great. I mean, there's another man. Don't have men in films except Oscar Isaac. Like, that's really the the dream that we should be having. But um, 
the casting of him, I thought, also was really, really great because he's only in the movie a tiny bit. But right at the beginning, you have this scene with him and you haven't met this character before, really. But you sense that something is really off about him. And basically what you have to know from his scenes, there are some flashbacks with the two of them that show their sort of more happy parts of their relationship. And you have to get that they're a couple and that they're compelling and then also get when he comes back, there's something really weird. And that has to sort of compel you through the film because that's what's driving her as a character or at least superficially what's driving her. And that was what kind of hooked me into the movie right at the beginning. Not him over the women, obviously, like I thought Natalie Portman was amazing in this, but just that sense of like something is really off about this. And I think Alex yeah. Garland is really good at that sense of like something's weird here and I'm not sure what it is. And it's an but... actually effective kind of gender flipped version yeah. of the missing wife, dead wife trope, because that is yeah. the motivation of like every fucking guy in Hollywood, you know? And it's like in this one, you know, you see that Oscar Isaac's character is this lovely person, but you know something's wrong yes well he's like a special ops guy well so yeah. <laughs> there's he also is definitely like doing doing some murdering for a living but and you only see him at home <laughs> well right but i just mean like clearly he's off doing things that not i don't mean like he's bad from a moral perspective although of course he's doing bad things but there's just this whole element of his life that natalie portman as a character and you as the audience don't know about so that's an element of mystery that's introduced right from the beginning and then when he comes back he knows to show up at her house and he knows who she is but she asks him all these questions and he doesn't have answers to yeah he doesn't understand how he got back to her house and he doesn't know where he was and this kind of thing and it's very weird and one of the um articles i read about the movie kind of talked a little bit about this more in relation to the ending but there's something very unsettling about not having language to describe things or answers to questions using language and particularly in this case where like her husband's been vanished for a year and then he shows up and is like i don't know what's going on like there's just on a sort of id level it's really unsettling it's a really great example of how in a lot of films it's better to kind of illustrate stuff and explain it you know which we all know but um it uses this framing device of we see Natalie Mormon's character Lena getting kind of questioned and it's um it's a flash forward. So really early in the film, they actually spoil which characters are gonna die, which I found really interesting because going into the film, obviously you know that either all or some of the members of her team are gonna die because that's how this kind of film works. So they're just like taking it off the table immediately. They're like, oh, such and such person died. And she's like, yes. But the kind of the point as you see these questioning scenes from the future kind of interspersed with um, her going into the shimmer with the team you realize the whole point is that she literally can't answer any of the questions this film actually isn't hard to understand you know the meaning behind the concepts is very open to interpretation there's been a lot of really interesting viewpoints on it kind of after the fact but in terms of when you're actually watching the film it's not actually that complicated or ambiguous what's happening you know you can follow it and then afterwards you're like oh i've got some questions but lena natalie portman's character literally can't explain what happened so we kind of will see these scenes where it's like they went into the shimmer and then they lost several days of their memory and they set up camp and then woke up and then she'll be questioned and she'll be like i just don't know what happened 
So it's it's just, I mean, you know, it's cheesy to say show, don't tell, but like that is literally what they're doing. And that's kind of all of the world building they have for the Shimmer works that way because it's all to do with kind of the atmosphere of what they're interacting with. And we're just seeing these really bizarre sort of mutated cancerous plants and animals and things that are just really unique and well designed. Well, yeah, most of the weirdness until you get to the very end which we will discuss later, is not from the storytelling exactly. It's from the world building, I would say. It's sort of too easy to divide it that way, but if you want to make an easy generalization, I think that that's not inaccurate. Um, Because, as you say, the actual way the story unfolds from a sort of narrative theory perspective or whatever is pretty straightforward and easy to follow and not actually that strange. Like, there are a lot of standard horror movie-type tropes, and the sort of people stuck in a spaceship, and they're all clearly going to die, except the sort of final girl-type thing. But what makes it weird is that the environment in which they're operating is so totally bizarre in a way that is genuinely fascinating, and that propels the film and then also creates situations that even within the framework that's pretty familiar feel new and interesting because it it Um, really does draw from all these kind of sci-fi and horror tropes in really familiar ways if you watch a lot of these movies which god knows i do (laughs) and i specifically love this type of film but it's like you know they even have stuff like the team where you have each character has a really specific role to play like um, you know, like Gina Rodriguez is playing this, she's playing a kind of confident soldier type who gets angry. And then Tessa Thompson's playing this kind of sensitive uh, geek, the physicist character and that sort of thing. And then in terms of the horror, you know, they get picked off one by one, as you can probably deduce. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of like the overall concept, it's interesting to kind of put this alongside Arrival, because that's really the last really well-known example of a movie that's all about trying to communicate with aliens Um, and there has been so many examples of films and tv shows that try to illustrate a truly alien society in a way that we can still you know comprehend without it getting too abstract and i think arrivals you know arrivals a really great example and then star trek is kind of the cheesy version because like it's just humans in silly suits and they use kind of allegorical topics to illustrate the different humans uh, the different alien societies and in this one it's the same sort of framework as something like Arrival, where you have this alien incursion, but sort of the point is that you can't communicate because they're interacting constantly with the alien presence because they're literally inside it. But everything that's happening that's strange, there's no way to ever know whether it's actually attempting to make contact or communicate or if it's just something that's happening naturally you know like when butterflies evolve a pair of eyes on their back or something in real life and to frighten away animals and it's like the butterfly doesn't know it has eyes yeah it's i i sort of thought about arrival just in the sense of it being a sci-fi film about a female scientist protagonist but i think that they're not actually particularly similar films no no they're definitely not and they're definitely not kind of in terms of the emotional response you get either because arrival is yeah very much like it's a serious blockbuster the thing about annihilation was i actually kind of forgot after who knows how many minutes that it was even like an alien situation at all and then they kind of bring it back at the end and i was like oh right 
I guess that's what was happening because it's so irrelevant to what the movie is doing. And this is not a criticism. It doesn't matter. It's fine. But it seemed extremely clear to me that Alex Garland was so much more interested in the effect that this phenomenon that's happening inside the space had on people and the reactions that people would have to it and then how they would interact with each other and obviously the whole thing is very psychological and allegorical that you know and of course something like Arrival which I think is a good comparison in terms of like thinking about how these stories are operating is also allegorical of course all good sci-fi is but it is about people talking to aliens like that in a very literal straightforward way and this I think has much less of a grounded narrative like it's all kind of well it's it's heavily inspired by uh stalker by tarkovsky have have you seen it i've never seen any tarkovsky i know you have recently (laughs) yes i i've seen (laughs) three tarkovsky movies two of them i was practically propping my eyelids open with matchsticks to stay awake (laughs) tarkovsky is not for me stalker was the first one i saw and i actually did I did, it did kind of resonate with me. Um, I wouldn't rewatch it, and I don't think I got as much out of it as a lot of people do. Like, for listeners who are not aware of Tarkovsky, he's a Soviet filmmaker who basically is celebrated as one of the most kind of influential film geniuses in history. And Stalker is this sci-fi narrative. You know, none of his films are really like, oh, this totally makes sense in a kind of mainstream storytelling way you know Solaris is probably like the biggest quote-unquote hit right Um, which I also didn't enjoy Um, but Stalker (laughs) is kind of very similar story to Annihilation and people have remarked quite a lot on how intentionally similar there are but it is about this group of men who are traveling into this place called the zone um, which has this kind of unsettling sentience and people enter the zone and try to go into a room where they're granted a wish it's intentionally all very obscure um, but it's kind of about the mood of being in this weird deteriorating place that has these elements of post-nuclear apocalypse and the kind of rotting plants and that sort of thing Um, and this is in a similar vein and obviously kind of the nuclear aspect comes in the fact that as they go in you're aware that the plants and animals are mutating and that kind of creates a concern that something similar will happen to the people. And because, you know, the exploration team knows that all the previous teams never came out, and we, because we've watched horror and sci-fi movies before, we know that there's a chance they might go mad and kill each other. Um, It's this kind of ever-present threat that comes from within as well as, like, from without. Yeah, I had seen some comparisons to that film, but I literally, until you just described it, did not even know what it was about. And I have been a film person my whole life, so that's not impressive for me. I mean, me. the imagery of Stalker I did like, but ultimately I wasn't like this film is really changing my life. Whereas like I did I did like a radio program recently where they like pit two film critics and each one picks a director with like the letter of the the first letter of the director's name. It was very gimmicky but awesome. I picked Del Toro and the other person picked Tarkovsky. And she was just talking about how she watches Tarkovsky movies over and over again and kind of goes into this meditative trance and it helps her like understand the world better. And it's this amazing like kind of intellectual experience. And I was like, I love Hellboy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, that's fine too. Yeah. That's so it was just like there was fine. no, there was not much of a meter, a middle ground. She was very smart and interesting, but I was just like, I can't. I just had to keep going. I'm sorry, but I cannot accurately say that I find any Tarkovsky film comprehensible or interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very beautiful. Stay true to yourself. <laughs> yep. It's, that's what all that we can do in this world. Uh, the nuclear thing hadn't really occurred to me, although I could see how if you were working off of that comparison, that that would make sense because well, she mentions earlier on because her husband has this internal bleeding. She's like, was he exposed to radiation? So yeah. it's kind of it doesn't go any further than that. Yeah, and they are having all of these strange mutations. I think it didn't. I wasn't really thinking about it because again, the movie is taking place in such a abstract and metaphorical space that even though it is obviously alluding to the real world in certain ways that something and the way that nuclear fallout etc has been depicted in pop culture is incredibly varied and metaphorical up to like the x-men right like there's a whole lot there to be talked about but that even that seemed almost like too concrete a thing what was oh yeah i mean it's definitely right? there's no it's more like at the beginning of the film she's trying to find a rational explanation for something that very very quickly becomes apparent will never have a rational explanation right and i really appreciated about the movie that basically what happens at the end and this is i'm not spoiling it someone either confirms or denies that it is an alien thing and it really felt like they were just sort of like well i guess we have to explain this or not and i was like it's because you just don't care and i don't care (laughs) i really appreciated how much the movie just even though it did give certain explanations for things that were happening to make it comprehensible to the viewer was so totally disinterested in reality i just thought that was great even while being a comprehensible narrative like I've seen this movie compared a lot and by you as well as many others to Under the Skin, which I think is a sort of alien film starring Scarlett Johansson, which we should definitely do an episode about one day because it's so amazing. And I think you like it more than I do. I definitely do. But I will have insight because it's one of the few films filmed in Glasgow. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) And I thought that I think that's a really interesting comparison because I like that film more than this one for sure and i but i get why they're being compared to each other there's a similar kind of uncanniness but i think that that movie is way more experimentally yeah i mean that under the skin is an art film and this is like a very artistic thoughtful sci-fi genre movie they're operating in different spheres yes which is totally fine obviously but i found that the themes of under the skin which i think some people at the time found very impenetrable which was mystifying to me because i found it immediately comprehensible isn't it just about being a woman yes but some people thought okay i thought i thought i'd missed something because i was like nope. it's about you know when you're like walking around and you got to be a woman like <laughs> it's literally just about that but for some people this was very hard i i don't remember the details but i imagine it was mostly men who found this complicated anyway I found the sort of themes of this film, and I think we can kind of move into spoilers now because it's hard to talk about this movie without talking about the ending, so we'll talk about this kind of at length. 
I enjoyed this movie a lot, and I left and said to one of the people I was with, I was like, I really liked it, um, and I thought it was great, but I'm really going to have to read stuff about it that other people have written because I have no idea what it's about. And I have read some things, and we will now discuss it, and I I could tell watching it that it was about something, but it was not immediately apparent to me at all what it was doing and that it's not that I need everything to be like spelled out for me obviously Mm -hmm. but I did feel that there was some thematic murkiness see I (laughs) I was almost like yeah because I had a very different response because I was like I like I said before I think it's really interesting that this film is receiving kind of authentically a pretty wide range of interpretations all of which make sense because uh, Alex Garland like intentionally makes his films quite ambiguous you know Ex Machina he like made it so that people could kind of go for both sides and this one is less both sides and more like a prison he did because I fucking interviewed him and he was like intentionally I mean yeah (laughs) I went to a QA and a that was not recorded for public consumption and that is not what he said well I'm glad to hear that because I remember being like are you fucking sure (laughs) no sir we, we simply must divert for one moment because this is hilarious to me there were a bunch of like idiot men in the audience who were oh my god i'm so satisfied i i love alex garland he was such a like wonderful curmudgeonly presence at the front of the room and they were asking all these (laughs) dumb fuck questions at the end of that movie which i assume most of you have seen but i will not spoil it and he was literally just like no kind of bad like the point of this film is they're really bad (laughs) that's great i'm really interested to hear because like i Alex Garland is someone about whom I know very little apart from like I've read his Wikipedia page but every single film he's made I have passionately adored all of which for completely different reasons which is quite unusual because usually when I like a filmmaker it'll be very easy for me to kind of see a through line between their work whereas him it's just like you're good at sci-fi but um anyway uh with regards to Annihilation's themes I was really interested to see that Morgan and I had quite different experiences um because usually I feel like either I'm the one who doesn't understand what's going on or we have like we both have like interpretations that may or may not coalesce but watching this movie from relatively early on I was just like this film is very clearly about self-destruction and depression and I actually thought there's a point midway through the film where Natalie Portman's character is talking to one of the women on her team and they have this very straightforward conversation which I was kind of saying they're like oh it's really interesting they're having this conversation that is so explanatory compared to the rest of the film because they're talking about how everyone on the team has a different trauma of some kind so one of the like you know Tessa Thompson's character um, is self-harmed and has all these scars in her arms and it's kind of implied whether she's you know tried to kill herself or something and the team leader has cancer and obviously Natalie Portman's character is there because of her husband but at the same time we also find out that she's been cheating on her husband and that's potentially the impetus for why he decided to go on the mission in the first place so she's the person who's destroyed her own marriage and is now kind of going back to loop through this and the Ouroboros thing which is like the whole theme of the movie but I was thinking during that scene oh I guess they have to have this one conversation to make it really obvious what the themes are (laughs) and Morgan's just shaking her head at me like no Um, but I just I just found it I guess we should explain what happens at the end, but I feel like the, the kind of the title of the film just becomes very apparent towards the end because it is this kind of horror movie narrative of moving inexorably towards destruction and also kind of tying that into these themes of sort of 
self-destruction, which are kind of discussed very explicitly within the film. But kind of the horror movie framework that this film uses is something I felt kind of very... Um, I felt not not physically as in my body, but it was very easy for me to feel kind of the trajectory, like when you're in a train and it's going along the track kind of situation, where it's like the beginning of the horror movie is always like, don't go into the forbidden forest. And then every dumb fuck is like, yeah, I'm going to go into the forbidden forest. And then this one, they're just going forever towards this lighthouse, even though everything that's telling them is not to. And when they eventually go there, Natalie Portman, who's been stripped away from all of her, you know, friends now, is presented with this dark hole. And you're like, well, she's going to go into that fucking hole. And of course she does. And it's all very disturbing. And what she's presented with is, first of all, when she reaches the lighthouse, she discovers that her husband has a double that was created by the shimmer. So it kind of replicates cells and creatures and mutates them. And uh, it becomes clear that her original husband killed himself and the person who came back was the copy. And when Natalie Portman goes down into the hole, she sees Ventress, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character, the kind of team leader, who has gone off the deep end, as one would expect, because she's been confronted by this alien entity at its core. And she kind of transmutes into this beautiful kaleidoscopic light show, because we love cinema, um, which communicates with Natalie Portman in some capacity. And then gives Natalie Portman a double of her own, at which point the film gives us a kind of interpretive dance scene. And I was like, this is so fucking my jam. I am so happy to see this. If a film has has an interpretive dance scene, just, I am so happy. Like, I think (laughs) after watching the movie, I think the first thing I tweeted was something like, I'm mailing Alex Garland a million dollars for including this (laughs) dance scene. Because it's like, it is the scene where this humanoid, but not fully... Portman resembling creature just mirrors all of Natalie Portman's movements so when she tries to escape the room and kind of get out of the lighthouse and travel home this physical entity that is heavier than her but is completely faceless is like crushing her against the door and I was just looking at this being like well okay this is clearly depression and the only answer for her to escape the physical form of her depression is for her to either absorb it or to acknowledge its presence because it's not something you can physically fight back against. And then she does do that and she kind of manages to like destroy it and stuff and get off home. But yeah, that was my thought process while watching this section of the film. <laughs> yeah, and there are a couple of really good articles um, about Yeah, there that. are much better people who've written about this. We will link to Angelica Bastian's um, very intense article, which is much more expert than mine. <laughs> yeah. It was a really good piece that you sh- if you've seen the movie, I really recommend that you read. There was also a really good review at the New Republic by someone whose name I've forgotten that will link to it also that did a lot uh, did a lot of different things, but one of them was doing this whole Freudian reading using Virginia Woolf's to the lighthouse that really satisfied me personally <laughs> as someone who's done a lot of psychoanalytic criticism. And also used to have a poster with the cover of To the Lighthouse hanging on the wall. One of my very favorite novels. You see, I'm annoyed with myself because I've actually read several Virginia Woolf books, but I'm pretty sure I never read To the Lighthouse. And it's like, why, you fool? That's the best one by a lot. And I have read most of them. And she's one of my very favorite authors. But I think most of the books are kind of interesting experiments that don't fully work. But To the Lighthouse is like, 
the masterpiece. So you should read it. As well, I I used to live with like a Virginia Woolf maniac who kind of fell in love with her as a result of listening to Patrick Wolf's To the Lighthouse concept album. So (laughs) we all come at these things from different directions. That's beautiful. And there's a lot of Freudian stuff in To the Lighthouse, which makes sense since it was written in 1927-ish. And um, the lighthouse in that is presented as this sort of object of desire that can never be reached, right? And what was interesting about this film, which I think has to be referencing that novel in some capacity, Obviously, it's based on another book in which a lighthouse appears. But like, well, apparently in the book, the thing that they're trying to get to isn't even present in the film. So it's like there's a tower, but it's a tower that's sort of constructed by the entity. So the whole lighthouse thing is basically just Alex Garland being like, put it in. Okay. I love Virginia then, Woolf. <laughs> then it's definitely a reference. And if you are someone who has read a lot of English literature, like the image of a lighthouse so absolutely conjures that novel. But in this film, she does get there and then literally like goes down into a hole in the ground, which is so obviously Freudian in a way that even though I wasn't really sure like what exactly was going on, I was like, well, I can I know what's happening here. (laughs) That was clear to me. So do you know what I was thinking? So there were two points where a very specific word came into my head. So the second was that scene where she goes into the hole and the first was when they were kind of wandering around the field full of plant people. But that word was lady garden. <laughs> I was like, they've gone into the lady garden. <laughs> oh my God. Just like, my, just it's unfortunate that my brain works this way. <laughs> I, I have nothing to say to this. <laughs> oh my God. That's really beautiful. And thank you for sharing that with me and everyone <laughs> listening to this podcast forever. <laughs> but um, what I keep sort of thinking about now, having read up on this and, you know, seen other people's reactions to it, and then sort of evaluated my own experience of watching the end is, and this is just sort of like, sort of thought experiment criticism right is whether i would change it somehow or whether i did just kind of miss something right like is there something about this movie that should have been done better or was i just not in a frame of mind to be grasping it and i don't know that i really have the answer to that like clearly there are people who i mean and like if you read the Angelica Bastian piece, she obviously had like an incredibly intense emotional reaction to this movie. And like, everyone's going to have an emotional reaction to something that gets put out and which is good and how art should work. But I really can't decide whether I did just kind of miss it or whether there is still some kind of murkiness that could have been clearer like I, I did speak to one other person who also was like I have no idea what's going on at the end of that movie so I know it wasn't just me I'm not the only person who was like what's happening well test audiences um, caused Paramount Pictures to label it too intellectual and refuse to at least own cinemas so maybe they were right <laughs> <laughs> maybe your master's degree from Oxford is not enough exactly in which I specialized 
in psychoanalytic criticism. Well, so I, I really watched feel... I watched Alien vs. Predator last week, so I was primed. <laughs> yeah, I really feel like I dropped the ball here. Um, but it's, yeah, I just, it's been really interesting for me to sort of think about because I found, so this other friend I was talking to also was like, I found the third act really terrible and I thought it didn't coalesce, etc., etc. Whereas I found the third act, even though I didn't really get what it was, you know, about in quotes, I thought it was definitely the best part of the movie and totally transfixing to watch. Like, there's this incredibly long stretch where there's no dialogue at all because it's just yeah. Natalie Portman like, and it's in just, the basement. It's just with a this really thing. well-paced film because it is it is following this expected structure for this combo of sci-fi and horror, but the film feels simultaneously feels longer than its runtime because there's so much material, but doesn't feel like, oh, this is dragging on and it's too long. Because yeah, it's got this kind of very, like I said, like kind of inexorable structure. And once you get to the final act, everything has become so weird that it is in this kind of dream state while also being fucking terrifying because i feel like we've been a bit remiss here in not complimenting natalie portman enough but natalie portman fucking rules (laughs) i have always defended her against her haters and then she did jackie and now this and i feel so validated i would never deny you because i love her for the slightly less good reason of i imprinted on her age 10 as queen amidala (laughs) (laughs) also fine also acceptable. Yeah, this is like um, how Anne Hathaway was grandfathered in from the Princess Diaries. So whenever anyone says anything mean about her, I'm like, you bitches. So <laughs> uh, don't get me started on Anne Hathaway, <laughs> who I also adore and has been unfairly maligned by the internet. Yeah, Natalie Portman in this. The whole cast is great. I think this movie is a triumph of casting. Every person is just a perfect match for the role. I keep marveling. Like, so Tessa Thompson's screen time is like. I mean, the the team members, like, they don't have, like, a huge amount of screen time each, right? And I was just thinking, Tessa Thompson, like, obviously partly because of the type of internet I hang out in, but her kind of celebrity presence looms very large in my kind of world. Um, She's not actually done that many big movies. You know, her biggest movie is Thor, and she also hasn't really, like, led a mainstream movie. She has, like, bit parts and stuff, but I've seen her in three or four different things, four or five maybe. And in every one, she has played a completely distinct character that was really memorable as Tessa Thompson and, like, not even a slight hint of, kind of, typecasting. Because, like, with a lot of actors, typecasting, you know, not a bad thing, right? But it's, like, there's a certain type of character you play. And Natalie Portman in this film is playing a Natalie Portman character, right? Gina Rodriguez is playing fucking the opposite of Jane the Virgin, which is a delight. She's playing this, like, very aggressive, like, butch soldier character and clearly having a real ball with it. Tessa Thompson, like, the last thing everyone saw her in was playing this, like, hard-drinking Valkyrie character in fucking slapstick comedy Thor 3. And in this, she's playing this really vulnerable, like, tender, nerdy scientist who ends up committing a full kind of absorbation of the alien presence self-destruction suicide by turning into a plant i mean amazing (laughs) yeah i was i had the exact same thought about her and it was just so different i mean she looks mousy in this movie tessa thompson looks mousy like, that's a feat. Congratulations. Yeah. And her you whole physicality, she's like job. hunched over. Like, my one other quibble was I thought that she, I think they shot stuff with her and cut it. Because she has particularly very minimal screen time of the supporting characters, which I thought was a bummer. 
her screen time when she has it was she really made an impact, which was great. But I wish that she'd been in it a little more. Jennifer Jason Lee was probably my favorite of the supporting performances. She was just so fucking weird in a way. That oh God, she was I weird. Was she was real like, weird. Great. <laughs> and then, as I said at the beginning, Oscar Isaac I thought was really, really effective in that small role because if that actor doesn't completely work, even though it is a really small part, the movie doesn't really work. Yeah. Um, and, but Natalie Portman is the star of the show. I mean, she's so I just intense. Thought she was wonderful. She's very good at being stressed, is Natalie Portman. Yeah. But also, the flashbacks with her and Oscar Isaac to their happier times, they're both totally happy and giggly and, and charming together Adorable. in a way that's not what you normally associate with. And you know that Oscar Isaac was filming this not only at the same time as Star Wars, but sometimes on the same day. I did not know that. But so that's they were filming remarkable. in the same studio building, and there's I saw some interview with Alex Garland where he was basically just singing Ryan Johnson's praises because he was like, "This guy knows what it's like to film a small, low budget sci fi movie in three weeks because it's allowed <laughs> to have Oscar Isaac on a timeshare basis." <laughs> that's wonderful. A plus. Yeah, I, I just the whole thing I thought was really well done. And I would recommend it, obviously. So what was the what was the element of the ending that you didn't really engage with or you said you didn't really get? I mean, like we left and I had found it very narratively satisfying and a great like cinematic experience, right? Like yeah. that the whole thing with the, the double at the end was so uncanny and like beautiful to watch. But I literally said to our friend Sarah, like that was great. I don't know what it was about. Oh, okay. Like, like literally, I was like, well, because all good sci-fi is allegorical, right? Like, yeah. it's, it has to be about something other than an alien or whatever the plot is. And it was just so... The whole, the whole movie, there was no allegory that was making itself okay. apparent to me. All right. okay. Like, at any point. Which, I guess, in a certain way is a testament to the movie being really engaging because I was definitely just sort of like this is terrifying <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh but... my god the fucking bear creature <sighs> very frightening but it wasn't making me think in a way that a lot of films I really like make me think I think and I okay. think it's I think it's more successful in certain ways than Ex Machina it's definitely weirder in a way that I appreciated yeah um and more original in certain ways but i think i liked like ex machina is a movie i've seen twice and i know i'm gonna watch again even though i think it has that movie has third act problems for sure which alex garland has traditionally had third act problems throughout his career the third act of sunshine is hilarious garbage but ex machina i find really fun yeah even though it's also disturbing in a way that this, even though I would wholly recommend it to everyone and found it really enjoyable, it's not something I'd be like, I'm just going to turn on Annihilation like, tonight and just have a fun movie night. Like, it's not pleasurable in that way, which isn't a criticism, but yeah. I was sort of comparing them and I think that they have kind of different... It's Machina is like, um, it has this humor because it's satirizing parts of toxic masculinity and it has like this yeah. kind of thriller mindset, whereas you can't... I mean, obviously, an Annihilation is doing something intentionally different, but also 
you know, it's a movie about like grief and misery and self-destruction and people's bodies being transformed into like a weird mushroom. So, <laughs> um, so it's inherently yes. more disturbing. <laughs> yes, very much so. And I think Ex Machina is basically a play. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's like you can, it's very clearly the type of film where it's like, I've designed a very smart film where I need three actors in a room. <laughs> Right. I mean, obviously, and it just, I mean, they just went to like a weird hotel in Norway or something and like set up camp and whatever. Like, I am always looking for movies that are kind of pure cinema experiences in the sense that you don't necessarily need dialogue or whatever. I mean, this is why I love Dunkirk yeah. so much is that it was so experiential or like Under the Skin is another example of that. But I think that there is something quite satisfying about just writing that's very good for characters who feel like real people. And then the actors executing that. Like, the three characters in that movie all feel completely like individual people, and the actors are all so good. That's actually, that's a really interesting comparison that I hadn't really considered before, but I'd, I'd obviously, with, like, people's directorial debuts, there's always kind of a sense that it's training wheels, which I never felt with Ex Machina. Um, there are rumors that he actually no. directed some of Dread. Uh, <laughs> and by rumors, I, I mean literally the lead actor was like, he directed some of Dread. Uh, but um, uh, Dread, which by the way, really great movie. Awesome. Very different from these films, but highly recommended. But um, it's not that it's training wheels, but it's more like you said, Ex Machina does work as just people in a room, theatrical direction. Whereas Annihilation is, it has that element, but it's also very much thing where it's like, this could never work in any other medium because the whole thing is about being right. dunked into this weird soundscape where everyone's turning into a mushroom. Which, yeah, before yes. we finish the podcast, shout out to the people who made the music on this. Uh, I've forgotten the actual humans' names, but it's by Portishead. Um, they did the music for Ex Machina and they also should have done the music for Judge Dredd, but it was released as a free band camp album instead so you should listen to that and just feel sad the studio decided to fire them in return for whoever else did the music <laughs> hollywood man it's a fucked up place <laughs> yeah i saw that dread headline and i was like oh that's someone on Twitter i mean dread like, does well, not come across as a movie that messed up like it doesn't feel like one of these films where it's like oh a bunch of stuff got fucked up behind the scenes you watch it and you're like this is a good film that they failed to advertise well but like didn't but didn't Carl Urban literally say he directed the movie? Um, that Alex Garland directed the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah he did. But like we, right. but you can't and tell that so, from watching the movie. You can't be like, oh look, they put like a fake director in. <laughs> well, no, this is what I'm saying. Is it just it? My understanding, based on this assertion that we do not Unverified. know whether it's true or not, never was mentioned before. Not like. <laughs> right was not like oh there were five people but rather like yeah he literally just did it which is kind of a different thing and as someone who i cannot remember said on twitter like oh this makes a lot of sense because alex garland has gone on to have this like amazing career and whatever the guy whose name is who directed dread never did anything before and has done nothing since of any value <laughs> like dread which i haven't seen but i know you love is great so Hmm. Hmm. I just looked him up. It's a guy named Pete Travis. And actually he has. He made City of Tiny Lights last year, which I will be seeing because it stars Billy Piper. And if Billy Piper's in something, I'm there. <laughs> I think we can agree, however, that the sort of breadth and depth of Pete Travis, whom I've never heard of, his career has not quite been on the level of Alex Carlin's. No. 
<laughs> I just thought it was funny. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Obviously, we have no idea no. what really happened, but it's remarkable for an actor to say something like that. <laughs> All right, well, see Annihilation. If you're in the United States, go pay money to see it. Vote with your dollars. If you live elsewhere, I'm sorry. But yeah, find, you find your Netflix. friend with the largest screen and plug your Netflix into it. Yes, that's really the only solution. Next week, we will be watching a Sherlock Holmes We film. will. This will be selected by our Patreon patrons. So if you want to make the choice of which Sherlock we're going to be watching, you have the power. The poll is now up on our Patreon. Yes. Uh, Gamia, would you like to list the options? Yes. So here's the list of options that we gave. We apologize for not including The Great Mouse Detective, which I forgot about because I've never seen. But here are what you can vote for if you support us on Patreon and go and click on there. Um, A Sherlock Holmes short story, an episode of BBC Sherlock, an episode of Elementary, an episode of the classic 80s and 90s Jeremy Brett Granada Sherlock Holmes, or one of the Robert Downey Jr. movies. So those are the options. If it's one of the TV shows or the short stories, we will just pick like the best one. But yeah, make your choices. The power is yours. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, aside from our Patreon, which you should support to control our viewing or reading in this case, you can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.